Hello everyone, Podrick here. We've just wrapped up season six of Poetry Unbound and we'll be back in 2023 with another few seasons. And we just launched, as if you didn't know, the Poetry Unbound book published by Norton in the USA and Canon Gate everywhere else. And we thought it'd be fantastic for anyone who didn't get a chance to hear the brilliant Lorna Goodison as she spoke at the book launch to have an opportunity to hear her. She reads and talks about her poem reporting back to Queen Isabella. Enjoy the episode. Lorne is a major figure in world literature. Twelve books of poetry and memoirs and literary criticism and short stories. She's been widely anthologised. She was the Poet Laureate of Jamaica from 2017 to 2020. And she was awarded the 2019 Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry. And on top of that, she's won many other awards for her work. Lorna is one of the reasons I love poetry. I have been reading her work for years and it has been a thrill to make a Poetry Unbound episode about Lorna's poem as well as to write about it, as well as to meet and get to know her and exchange correspondences with Lorna. So Lorna, I'd like to invite you into the Zoom room now and we look forward to a conversation with you. So wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Such an honour to be invited by you. and. Um, I'm just very, very, very honoured. <laughs> well, it's an honour to to know you and to uh, engage with your work, Lorna. We're going to talk a little bit about that magnificent poem of yours, reporting back to Queen Isabella. But I wonder if you'd read it for us first. Sure, I'd be happy to. Reporting back to Queen Isabella. When Don Cristobal returned to a hero's welcome, his caravels corked with treasures of the new world, he presented his findings, told of his great adventures to Queen Isabella, whose speech set the gold standard for her nation's language. And when he came to Examica, he described it so, the fairest isle that eyes ever beheld. Then he balled up a big sheet of parchment, unclenched, and let it fall off a flat surface before it landed at her feet. There we were. Massifs, high mountain ranges, expansive plains, deep valleys, one he'd christened for the Queen of Spain. Overabundance of wood, over 100 rivers, food and fat pastures for Spanish horses, men and cattle. And yes, your majesty, there were some people. Thanks for reading that, Lorna. I mean, I, I love the drama of that poem. Don Cristobal, Christopher Columbus, back in the court of his funder, the Queen of Spain, and all this pageantry that's happening in it. What was it that, um, I know that you were doing some explorations around Europe at the time, but what was it that drew you to write that poem? We would go into these places in Spain and Portugal and, it, you know, we'd have docents and guides who would explain to us the glorious history of Spain and Portugal. And actually, we were with friends, one of whom was Mexican. And every now and again, she'd say to somebody, do you know where this stuff came from? And it would get a little awkward. But for me, that poem, I think, was born out of what my mother used to call an object lesson, hmm. where you take an object and you'd build a whole lesson around it. And as a child, I remember her distinctly telling me that when Christopher Columbus returned to Spain and to speak with Queen Isabella, he tried to describe to her what Jamaica looked like. And he balled up a big piece of paper and unclenched it 
to show her that Jamaica is very mountainous and it's got mountains and valleys. So I, I had that, that, that object lesson very much in mind when I was doing it. Hmm. How interesting. I've always wondered about what that balling up a big sheet of parchment and letting it unclench. Part of me had often wondered, was it an, an indication of the edge of the world or something? But what you're saying is that it brings your mother's um, story into this and at her object lesson. Yes, I, I think, you know, my mother was a good teacher of little children. And she she always would find something to sort of illustrate her stories to you. And I've done that for my students in other places. I say, mm-hmm. you know, Jamaica is very mountainous. You know, the Blue Mountains go up to over 7,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And then if you do that, it shows how mountainous, craggy and mountainous and filled with valleys and, yeah, you yeah. know, things it is. And for you, is that a, a, a feature of poetry as well, Lorna, when it comes to the question about an object? Like, are you, do you pay attention to objects in a poem? I do, because I, I trained as a painter. I love that definition of a poet as a maker, or as mm. the Scots say, a maker. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that you're making something like a piece of furniture or something. Yeah. I, I, my mother was a dressmaker, so I think a lot about building a garment when I make a poem. So it's very, it's a very tangible thing, very real to me sometimes, you know. Yeah. And what's this poem's hunger for you? What, what does this poem want or need? Okay. As somebody who has written many poems and many of them, you know, Caribbean and uh, writers are famous for pushing back. You know, the empire writes back. I didn't want a polemic. I didn't want to rage. I wanted to just say something that, really came, the poem surfaced as something very quiet. Mm. And I wanted to say things about like the, the, the obsession the conquistadors had with gold. I put gold in Queen Isabella's mouth. <laughs> Her speech set the standard for, and that, that's the one place I use gold. But as we all know, those people, they actually said that they're conquistadors who said, you know, my people have a great hunger that can only be quenched, you know, satisfied by gold. Mm. There, there, there are things like that that I wanted to say, but I didn't want to rage. I didn't want to rant, you know. And I also wanted to say that I guess it was a business, a whole business deal that, you know, the two of them entered into. And the results are, well, you know, we've seen what the results are. Yeah. But, you know, all of that, those things I wanted to say about profit before people and things like that. And, but I wanted to say it in a very, you know, I, I didn't want to rage. Not this time, you know. There's a lot of quietude in the poem. Like I, there's there's that list towards the end um, yes. that describes all these things. And whenever I read the poem, I always think of the administrators who had to go and you know count the fields and count the rivers and and make make the maps and that the the ways within which there's a there's a quiet highlighting of the entire industry of the profit gaze looking at a place that belongs to itself and thinking that it could belong to a European country. Absolutely. And um, one of the things, it is said that the Taino people who Columbus found when he discovered, he couldn't discover them, they were there. But um, (laughs) the the Spaniards ate so much more than they did. Hmm. And that's one of the problems is that, you know, they they started feeding them, but they just couldn't, they, Hmm. they, they just ate them out of house and home, really. So I wanted to put that in there by just saying, you know, you know, all this food for Spanish horses, men and cattle. 
Oh, how interesting. You've you've done something very interesting with the the there we were in the middle of that poem. It's a very quiet little revolution in the poem. I wonder if maybe you could read that line again and then talk a little bit about it. There we were, massifs, high mountain ranges, expansive plains, deep valleys, one christened for the Queen of Spain. Overabundance of wood, over 100 rivers, food and fat pastures for Spanish horses, men and cattle. And yes, your majesty, there were some people. You had to adopt the administrator's voice. Hmm. You know, they, because I think there were pre, you know, several priests who went along with him, or at least one who kept diaries, you know, very detailed. I, I've read some of them detailed accounts of what was found there. And as you say, it, it must be quite a task to be given to number rivers, you know, to say yeah. were hundreds of rivers and you know, 72 plains or whatever. But straight off, that you know, there's named one of the plains. There, it's still there, the Queen of Spain Valley, you know. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You told me once about your usage of the word massive. I, I've always loved that. Yes, and I, I was very... Um, Jamaicans call wordplay is such a big part of the Jamaican language. And um, the masses, M-A-S-S-E-S, became the massives. But that could easily become the massives. You know, so the masses are the massives and the massives. Because, we, you know, we're massive and we're mountainous. And, yeah. <laughs> That's a way of speaking of people, hiding yeah. that kind of that, that vernacular for speaking of groups of people in, in, yes. in topographical language. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What, what is the effect for you in that that hidden we were there and the massives? What is the like there's there's a way of establishing who was there already and who was also going to be taken there forcibly? In that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm Actually, I was surprised when the poem turned up. There we were. I wasn't looking for it. You know, as with many poems you write, what I've written, I, I stepped back at the end of it and I thought, where did that particular thing come from? Because it was not my intention when I set out to write that. Ah. But I just remember this sort of clear way it, it rose up from, it's as if it, you know, it filtered down or something and it became very clear that at that point I had to say, there we were. Yeah. You know, I wasn't being objective. I wasn't standing outside the story anymore. It was about my story. And yeah. In the midst of the poem not being a polemic, the poem is an assertion and that, that assertion comes across really powerfully. It has to be because, and I think had I not gone to Spain and Portugal, I would not have written the poem in that way. The whole business of the civil service, huge amounts of people were just employed to just keep records and, you know, keep people in check and things like that. And, and they're all there, you know, they can show you, you know, they have all these things in these museums of that was, you know, somebody's boot spur or something when they stepped on a tiny person. No, I made that up. But, um, but I just thought I wanted to just tap into that some way. Maybe if I'd written a longer poem, I could have really gone to town with, with <laughs> a catalogue of what, they, you know, how many rivers, how many plains, how many, maybe I'll do that. Yeah, mm. well, I'll read that poem too. <laughs> um, you were you were poet laureate of Jamaica for three years. Um, yes. what, what did that show you in terms of 
people's interest in poetry and the role of poetry in a country. I'm curious what you felt or learned from that. Well, I will say that at my age, I definitely wanted to resist the urge to take a victory lap. You know, something like that happens and you think, oh, I, I remember very vividly my own experience as a child growing up in Jamaica of being made to memorize poems in school. And I remember when I knew I was going to be a poet or I was going to have this really strong relationship with poetry, I would have been about eight or nine. Mm. And I wanted as many children, young children as possible to have access mm. to what I had, which is teachers who loved poetry and taught me poetry and made me memorize all kinds of poems. So I, I took that as an opportunity to, I read in a lot of schools, I spoke to a lot of children, and then I wanted to work with young women. I worked with some young women downtown and we came up with a program called the All Flowers Are Roses program. The girls were taught basic self-defense and poetry writing. Hmm. And it might sound crazy, but um, for example, if one of the lessons in, they were taught in the self-defense section was no means no. No is a complete sentence. And then you have them write poems about that afterwards. You have marvelous results. I'm sure. Self-defense and self-expression. And um, it, it really was wonderful. It was a brilliant, wonderful thing. And um, f for me, I, I hope it was great for them. <laughs> I'm sure it was. But there were things like that that I felt I, I just always wanted an opportunity to be able to just go directly to the children, to young, the, the very young. And to say to them, you know, poetry can be a life-saving thing. It certainly saved my life many times. Everything that's thrown at you can find a way to shape it. You know? How would you say it saved you? You speak so powerfully about that and that it has been a life-saving thing, but I'd love to hear a bit more about that. I always had a sense that there was something out there that I had to find. And I was going to be troubled until I found it. I was never going to be at peace. I was always searching for it. And I, I searched diligently for it in places where I possibly couldn't have found it, you know. But having to come back to find it in, inside me, and it's about my faith. So poets led me there. Even the poets who wrote those wonderful hymns that I would sing at school in the morning, the poems of, say, George Herbert that were made into hymns, you know. King of glory, king of peace, I will love thee. I think somebody, was it Freud who said that no matter where he went in the explorations of the human psyche, he found that a poet had already passed that way. <laughs> Something like that. I'm, I'm misquoting him, but it's, that's a general idea. But I found more and more that the poets had passed the way in which I knew I eventually concluded that that is the way I had to go. Finding my way back to what lasts, what abides. Yeah. You, you, your poetry often does cross into language of hymnody, you know, yes. and that there is old um, Christian religion in it and Rastafarianism and the Quran and Islam is present there and Judaism. You, you, you draw on the sacred traditions of so many places. What is it about that that, that interests you so much? Well, I was very fortunate to have gone to a school in Jamaica where it was an Anglican school for girls. And they were so confident that we would never be looking to any other religion that they actually taught us a course in comparative religion when we got the sixth form. 
And um, I don't think any other school ever did that at that time. Yeah. But it made so much sense to me when I was being introduced to all these different religions in the world. And then in my travels, particularly as a writer, I just kept meeting people from every possible religion. And I love those people. These are people I love. And these are people who taught me things. So um, it just contributed to my sense that, you know, for the world to be as complex and as beautiful and as strange and as varied as it is, you know, I can't say oh, there, there wouldn't be many ways to praise or to worship. Hmm. Is, um, is poetry a form of travel for you, Lorna? Yes, it is. Definitely. My maternal ancestors, some of them came from where you come from. They came from Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> and long before, I, I've been to Ireland once. You'll have to come again. But I, I, I traveled there. I traveled there through the poems, you know, of, certainly of W.B. Yeats and mm. Patrick Kavanaugh and people like that. I, I, I feel I'm in Ireland when I read those poems. Mm. And, and what is it that that travel does for you? I'm curious. I feel that I have friends all in different places. And that travel does that to me. I, I really feel that I would have a, enjoyed a good visit with Patrick Kavanaugh, for example. Mm. He's one of my favorites. Yes, you know. So I travel there by poetry. And um, does that make sense to you? It does. I've just always been so so interested in how so many of your poems are experiences of the imagination or of memory. And I mean, you're 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 exhibiting that in a, in the craft of a poem. But I'm curious about where, where travel touches the soul. Like, that's really what I'm interested in. What does that do for you? Like where does, whether you actually go or whether you're just imagining that you're going, what, what does that do for the soul for you? Powerful things. Um, I once had the good fortune to go to Cairo and I just felt absolutely at home the minute I was there. I just felt that I'd, it was all right. One of my best examples, I have a friend who said he was terribly afraid of, of flying. He had real serious fear of flying. But he always wanted to go back to West Africa. So Jamaican friend of mine. And he said he, he sort of flew in, you know, just he was just so terrified all the way. But the minute they got over the continent, he was just at peace and happy. Mm-hmm. And I've had similar experiences in places, you know, where you just get there and you just think, ah, oh, I, I feel good here. Mm. So I, I don't know. I, I felt like that in parts of South Africa, for example. I get there and I just feel very happy. <laughs> don't know. Inexplicably so, you know, yeah. I don't know. I'm not answering your question very well, but it's the best I can do right now. <laughs> well, take everything you can. Lorna, it's very good of you to have taken time from your day. Would you read your poem again? And uh, we'd be delighted. Reporting back to Queen Isabella. When Don Cristobal returned to a hero's welcome, his caravels corked with treasures of the new world, he presented his findings, told of his great adventures to Queen Isabella, whose speech set the gold standard for her nation's language. When he came to Examica, he described it so, the fairest isle that eyes ever beheld. Then he balled up a big sheet of parchment, unclenched and let it fall off a flat surface before it landed at her feet. There we were, massifs, high mountain ranges, 
expansive plains, deep valleys, one he'd christened for the Queen of Spain, overabundance of wood, over 100 rivers, food and fat pastures, the Spanish horses, men and cattle, and yes, your majesty, there were some people. Lorna, thank you so much for giving us the time and your generosity and kind words about Poetry Unbound and all the goodness that you share. Thank you so much. Thank you, but can I just say that how blessed we are to know you. (laughs) I consider you to be a light bringer in this world and blessings on Poetry Unbound and everybody for recognizing that the world as it such as it is now can use anybody bringing light and you you my friend mr Patrick otwama are a light bringer and thank you thanks very much lorna how kind how good to have you here we get so many letters from people and anything you send to the Poetry and Bond team, we read, whether that's an email or on the socials, however it is that it gets to us or in Substack, we we read it all. And um, in so many um, messages that we get, people tell us how much they love the music. And so for that reason, I was really keen to invite Gautam in. And Gautam is the composer of most of the music that we use in Poetry and Bound. And he's also the producer of Poetry and Bound. He has a degree in music composition from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And Gautam, hello to you. Hello. Thank you. Um, I'm trying to compose myself a little bit from that (laughs) interview. I've really found myself deeply emotional there. So uh, apologies if it takes me a minute to recover. You know, Gautam, the main question that I hear from so many people is the curiosity that they have about what's in your mind when you're composing something like this. Um, What do you hope it'll provide for the listener? Yes. um, You know, it's maybe a bit trite or obvious to say, but the thing I'm really listening for or starting from at least is just a feeling. What does a poem or even sometimes a single line of a poem evoke for me? And then how can the music capture that feeling in some way. So sometimes that might come from pure intuition. Maybe I'm just writing the music I hear in my head. When I read a particular poem, maybe it comes from an image. One example that actually comes to mind is when I was working on the first batch of songs for this, Chris Hegel, our wonderful producer and technical director, gave me a prompt to write a piece of music that would reflect the feeling of what it feels like to sort of lie on your back at night and stare up at the night sky, at the stars in the sky. And so that song became At Dusk. That prompt became the song At Dusk. And so um, that can happen. Sometimes it might come from the idea of a creative constraint. The song Praise the Rain, which is more or less sort of like the theme song to Poetry Unbound. That's the song that plays at the beginning and end of most episodes came from sort of a creative urge to to write a piece of music in an odd time signature or odd to you know my training in western music at least and in this case that time signature is seven eight so seven counts over a measure but to do that in a way that would feel really grounded really rhythmic just easy to sort of nod your head and lilt along to so that's kind of all just a complicated way of saying, you know, imposing those creative constraints or limits can yeah. really be an inspiring way for me to sort of start to engage with the idea of like capturing that feeling. And I'm sure that's something that sure. is true also. On the, yeah. yeah. 
for poetry, for other art forms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've, I've had so many similar conversations with poets who would say the same thing. Yeah. I got a message on Instagram today from someone who's turned up who was telling me that they and their daughter sing along with the Praise the Rain thing at the beginning <laughs> and at the end of every episode. <laughs> bum, bum, ba-dum, bum, bum, ba-dum. <laughs> so there you are. You are influencing the ears and the humming of um, people in different parts of the world. Um, I often think I've said this to you before, Gautam, but I often think that the, the like the blank space on a page that you'd have on a poem that your music gives listeners to the podcast a kind of an auditory experience of the blank space. Is that something that you're thinking of too? Some way of supporting the reflection? Well, what what goes through your mind with that? Uh, yeah, when it comes to you know actually putting the music in these episodes. Um, I think it's it's really about yeah providing sort of like a soft landing place for people and to do that in a way that neither feels too neutral nor too editorializing like feel this feel this feel this music can't feel something for you you have to feel it and so I think it's about providing something of an open-ended feeling that people can kind of step into with their own reflections with their own experiences with their own feelings and, and feel supported in that. Thanks very much, Gotham. I'm delighted that people have had the opportunity to meet you and to hear some more about what goes on in your mind um, about that gorgeous music. And um, we have the lovely opportunity to meet a bunch of other people who work on the show now as well. So we've got a little video of some of the other people who work on Poetry Unbound who are going to say a hello to you all. My name is Kayla Edwards, and I'm the production assistant at the On Being Project. One of the things that I most like about working on Poetry Unbound is the challenge in the editing process to use episode structure and pacing to bring the listener into conversation with both Padraig and the poem. My name is Chris Hegel, and one of the things I love about working on Poetry Unbound is how well we collaborate together to make something beautiful. Hi, I'm Lillian Vo. I'm an art director at On Being. One of my favorite things about working on Poetry Unbound has been collaborating with a variety of artists throughout the seasons, like Myrna Kelleher on Letterpress Prints or Lucero Torres on photography. It's been a joy and a super creative challenge to bring poetry to life and make it more accessible through art. Hey, I'm Eddie Gonzalez. I'm the director of engagement at the On Being Project. And one of my favorite lines from a poem on Poetry Unbound is from Lee Young Lee's poem, From Blossoms. There are days we live as if death were nowhere in the background. From joy to joy to joy, from wing to wing, from blossom to blossom to impossible blossom to sweet impossible blossom. My name is Amy Chatelaine and I'm the digital chaplain at On Being. And one of the things that I love most about working for Poetry Unbound is being open to the world of our listeners through all of the stories that emerge with the help of a poem and how these stories make their way back to us in our inbox and on social media. So thank you. Thanks for listening, friends. If you want to watch a video of the full event, we'll put a link in the show notes. And also, to state the obvious, the book is launched now. So if you feel like giving a book to someone in your life who loves poetry or who wants to love poetry more, we'd be delighted if you'd order a copy or two. 
Thanks to everybody involved at On Being, at Norton, and to the one and only Lorna Goodison. And most of all, thanks to you for your listening and letters, for your kindness and communication. I look forward to being in touch with you again in 2023. This podcast is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.